I'm going to actually take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Acts this morning. We've been in a series that we've entitled Unstoppable, learning how God is on the move, not only in the first century as we're learning from this incredible book of the Bible, but how he is on the move in our world today. And if we would just be faithful and we would make him a priority and look for the opportunities that he lays before us, that we can have full confidence as we obey him and honor him and all that we say and do, that, that the work that we're a part of will go about and change many, many lives uh, as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we come to Acts chapter 20 in our series, and this is a transitionary passage. It's a passage that Luke will do from time to time in the book of uh, Acts, where he kind of stops and, and gives kind of a, just an assessment on what's transpiring. And, and as we come to our text this morning, we're going to come and realize that there's a lot of mundane matters that uh, are, are laid forth. There's, there's people that are named, there's uh, cities where they travel, and, and it would seem as if this passage of Scripture has very little for us to draw from. And this morning I want to see and want to show you that even within the mundane passages of Scripture, there's great truth. Even the exciting thing that happens in our text, a guy falling out of the window because he falls asleep during Paul's sermon and is resurrected from the grave, I'm not sure how much application there is in that. And here's why. If you fall asleep during my sermon, I'm not raising you from the dead. Your fault, so sad, we'll see you in heaven. But there is some truths that we want to glean from. And one of the transitions that we see is the transition of the personal involvement that Paul has and his church planning team has with planting and establishing churches. For the last 10 chapters, it's been a a bit of a broken record that Paul and his associates head into a a different place in the region of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, where Paul would go in with his associates into a city. He would proclaim the risen Savior, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and many people would reject. We would hear that the Jews right away, many of the Jews, the God-fearing Jews, would reject that Jesus was the Messiah that had been long awaited and proclaimed by the prophets. But then we would hear that the Gentiles would also get upset that, that many of their gods that they worshipped it was an affront to say that Jesus was Lord over all. But amidst this teaching and amidst this pushback, we see the unstoppable work of God because there were some who would believe. And those some remained faithful, and they grew. And they grew as a result of not only the initial church planning involvement that Paul had with those people in those different places, but also because Paul would make his journey back to them where it was told of us by Luke that he would strengthen and encourage the people that he had led to the Lord and had uh, brought into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, that whole time and that whole season of life for the church is about to come to an end. In Acts chapter 20, in the city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus is going to be really the last place where Paul's going to devote any amount of time. In fact, next week, we're going to see a very tear-filled farewell 
from Paul to this group of elders at the Ephesian church. And we're from that point on until the rest or to the end of the book of Acts, we're going to see Paul enter into the final aspect of his life and the final chapter of his ministry where he is no longer going to be involved in holding the hands of the local church, but now he's going to go about doing what was prophesied about him when he first met Jesus on the road to Damascus, that he would stand before rulers and those in authority and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ as he makes his way to Rome where he'll be martyred for the faith. No more hand-holding. No more Paul in person dealing with problems. And so this morning what we have before us is again a transitionary passage where Paul is going to move from the city of Ephesus where uh, he had just been a part of a whole city riot that had come as a result of idol makers being mad that their market share in the idol making business was getting smaller and smaller because Christians in greater, greater, or people in greater, greater number were coming to Christianity and bowing the knee to Jesus Christ and they had no need for idols. And as a result, the silversmiths of Ephesus become more and more angry. Well, that uproar subsides and what we see is a ministry that's going on of all these Gentile churches that are going to give money to a church in need in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was enduring some persecution at the time, but more importantly, they were a part of a region-wide famine that had caused great trouble for the people of God in the city of Jerusalem. And so these uh, cities and these places that Paul had visited and these churches that Paul had established had given money uh, to the work of relieving the needs of the Jerusalem church. And we're going to see that come into play. But this morning, what I want us to focus in on are some of the things with in a mundane passage of scripture, some things that we don't think about when we come into church. I want us to think about how we get the most out of our Sundays. And some of this may seem a little bit elementary, but my hope and my prayer is that as I share these things, that we'll do some thinking in our minds and ask the question, am I getting the most out of my Sundays when I gather with the people of God, or am I leaving something that God wants to bless me with in the days to come? And has God called me to something that maybe I'm not even aware of as I gather together? So this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 20. Verses 1 through 16. And as I read this passage, recognize that Hooked on Phonics hasn't always worked for me. There's a lot of towns that are hard to pronounce, and there's a lot of names that are difficult to pronounce. But I hope in prayers that as we read this text, we will see some things that will help us to understand what it means to be a Christian, but even more, what it means to be a Christian as we gather as the people of God and what our calling is. So let's look at Acts chapter 20, and let's start with verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Purus accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Tromphius. If you're looking for a name for an impending pregnancy, there's all kinds of there to choose from. 
These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in the five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So just recognize we're in the city of Troas. We're gathering in the church of Troas. And all of these men have gathered together from all these different places to meet Paul. And they gather on a Sunday. So notice what it says. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Everybody should sigh. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But when Paul went down and bent over him, And taking him into his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted. But going on ahead to the ship, we sent sail for Azos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had a... for. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Azos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the next day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Let us never forget that the mundane matter, even when we don't understand it, that whatever is written in God's Word is good for our teaching and our comfort and our exhortation. And so let's pray and ask God to teach us from this text. Father God, we come before you and we ask that you would speak to us with regards to a text that might not seem to be all that flashy to us this morning, a text that uh, may seem altogether um, not all that noteworthy. Lord, it's not very often that we see someone fall asleep in church and die and raise them from the dead. And yet in this text, we see a lot of truths about what it means for us to gather together as your people, to gather together uh, in one accord under one banner being the name of Jesus Christ. So teach us, Lord, what it is means to gather as your people. Lord, I pray that we might get the most out of our times together, not just for our own good, but for the good of those who are around us, that you might use us to impact the lives of those who are sitting near us even today. So Lord, teach us and train us in righteousness for your name's sake, we ask. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Well, a couple of years ago when my son was entering into high school, the local school administration had come up with an idea to help 8th graders transition into high school by offering a day as freshmen in what they called freshman orientation. It is where they would meet some of their teachers, they would walk through a um, uh, kind of a... Uh, 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 
a life in the day of a, a freshman going to their classes, going to their uh, lockers, enjoying lunch and all of that, to give them a snapshot of what freshman life was going to look like. They had those that were upperclassmen that would teach these freshmen what it was to get the most out of their uh, freshman experience, some of the pitfalls and concerns that would come along the way to help them to be able to enjoy their freshman year and not fall uh, to some of the things that might sabotage their experience. Well, this morning, what I believe Luke is doing in sharing with us kind of a Sunday at Troas is to give us kind of a snapshot of what life in the first century church looked like, and in some ways to orient ourselves to what church in the 21st century should look like as well. I've got two points of things that we need to do um, in the positive, and then one, if you will, in the negative. And so let's look at these three things this morning as we look at a Sunday in Troas with the people of God. First of all, like them, if we want to get the most out of our Sundays as we gather together, we need to be connected to the right people. We need to be connected to the right people. Listen, it will not do you any good to show up here cross this off your list, walk into this place, sit, receive some good music and some good prayers and good teaching, and then leave this place not talking or interacting with anyone. Right away in the text, I want you to see that it does not take a Greek scholar to recognize that first century Christianity was a Christianity that was not done in private by yourself, but it was done with people around you. We are are given seven names of individuals, and we know that those aren't the seven names that only are represented. We know Paul's name hasn't been represented in those names. Luke, who is there, as he says, we did this and we did that, is represented. And then the people, the Christians who lived in Troas, who these individuals came and joined in their assembly, aren't mentioned either. Of course, we've got Eutychus as well, who will be named in there as well in the text. So we've got an example that first century Christianity is a model and reminder that we need to do this thing together, not by ourselves. And some of us need to be challenged in that. And I'm talking in many, in many ways to even some of my introverted friends who find themselves thinking, well, I just need to go and, and do my duty and, and be a part of it, but I don't need to be a part of people. God made us for relationships, especially Christians, so that we might love on one another and care for one another and minister to one another. And we're going to see why we need one another. First of all, we're going to see that when they gathered together, they gathered together and they were able to encourage one another because they were an encouraging people. Write that down. They were an encouraging people. We are told in the text twice right away of this encouragement. Notice it says that first of all, in verse 1, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said, farewell, and departed for Macedonia. Notice in verse 2 it says, when, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. Any time in the text where you see a word or a theme being shared more than once, it should stop you because it's something of great importance. Twice in two verses, we are told that the people of God were involved in a ministry of encouragement. 
Now, right away, we need to ask the question, why is it that Paul would have to encourage people? Again, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. The reason why Paul encouraged people was because they were discouraged. Everybody say that, because they were discouraged. We don't need encouragement when everything's going well. We don't need encouragement when we're on the top of the mountain, when we're at the top of our game. We need encouragement when life isn't going the way we want it to, when things are causing us consternation and frustration. We need encouragement when we are at uh, the bottom of our game. We need encouragement when we have failed or are struggling to keep our head above water. The people of God in the first century had lots of reasons to be discouraged. They were a minority people. They were a hated people. Their very existence was causing riots and persecution to break out. You being a Christian wasn't something you wanted to tell your family and friends because it would mean that your place in society would drop dramatically. And these people would gather together and for one time, one time in the week, they wouldn't be discouraged in their faith, but they would find encouragement. And how badly is that needed today? We as Christians are a minority group. We as Christians are a group that is maligned and judged wrongly. We are a group of people that, that as we share the good news of Jesus Christ, many times the response of people is not one of openness and excitement, but that of pushback and anger. And as we gather together, just as the first century did, we need encouragement. We need people to literally put courage back into us as to why we believe the way we do. Why do we hope the way we do? Why do we do the things that we do? Because the world tells us for six days that what we're doing is utter foolishness. But on day seven, on that seventh day, as we will learn the first day of the week, they would gather together. And as a collective body, the people of God would encourage one another so that you could live another day. Listen, one of the most important things you should never forget about your attendance and your involvement in this gathering as a church is that it is here so that you can live another week. So that you can go into the world for another week. So that you can stand up against temptation for another week. Listen, there's a reason why God wants his people together every week. Because he knows that when we're not together, we will run into trouble. That uh, apart from the people of God speaking into our lives, we are our own biggest problem. And we need one another encouraging one another. Now notice, it is an encouragement that is done with great liberality. He encouraged them with much encouragement. Listen, what Luke is doing isn't adding a word because the professor said if you're going to write a gospel about the early church, make sure it's this many words. So he's just finding superlative words to add. There's a reason why he adds that word much. It is because encouragement, if it's really going to work, it's got to be done all the time. And so what a testimony for us who are parents. A testimony when we speak uh, about all the bad things our kids do. Well, their grades aren't good enough, and their room's not clean enough, and 
Their friends are problems and, and uh, uh, their uh, responsibility is found to be lacking. And we find all of these things, and I'm there, I've got three boys of my own, where we can find all the things wrong with it. But how often as parents are we encouraging our kids into the direction that we not only see them going, but the way that we want them to go? What about us who, who have employees under us? When we always are saying, well, it wasn't good enough, or it could always be better, how much better of a testimony could we give to a watching world if we were to be one who shared an encouragement with people we come around? Now, to encourage involves some things. Write these things down, okay? The first of all thing, that to encourage means it involves a level of intimacy. It is really hard for you or I either to encourage or to be encouraged by a stranger. A stranger knows little about us, and, and a compliment, that's nice, and every once in a while you'll get a compliment from someone you have never met before, and, and that's something nice. Yesterday I, I coached one of my son's basketball teams, and, and one of the players on the opposing basketball team had had a nice game. And as we were walking through the line, I, said, I stopped and I made special reference to something that the young man had done in the game. I'd never met the boy before, I probably will never see the boy again, and I said, guys, I just want to stop. As an opposing coach, I just want you to know I was impressed with your character and I was impressed with your passion for the game. Well done, young man. Listen, I don't think that he's talking about that compliment today. I'm sure he enjoyed it, a little pep in his step. He may have gone and told his mom or maybe his coach, listen, uh, that big, ugly, bald guy said something nice to me. But the encouragement that lasts, the encouragement that literally moves you from being fearful or discouraged in one area to doing what God is calling you to do amidst all types of difficult circumstances comes from a place where someone you know who knows your circumstances speaks something into you that changes your perspective. It changes your world view as a result of what's been said. What that means is, if we're going to be an encouraging church then we have to know one another. We have to engage with one another in a way that we can speak honestly and openly into the life of that individual. It involves intimacy. Number two, to encourage or to be encouraged involves transparency. So let's start with all of us desire a level of encouragement. I don't know anybody who would say, you know what, I don't want any encouragement at all. It's just a weird place to be. I think the human existence is, is that we all like it when someone encourages us. But to be able to be encouraged means I have to be open. Listen to me very carefully. I have to be open to the things that discourage me. I have to be open about the things that I'm struggling with. How can anybody with any kind of uh, right understanding encourage me with something without knowing where I'm at? See, uh, some of us are mad that the people around us are not encouraging us, but we are unwilling to open ourselves up to those people. 
And I will tell you, it isn't that you're not around encouraging people. It's that you have put an arm's length between you and them saying, listen, I'm not going to tell you what bothers me. I'm not going to tell you what discourages me. I'm not going to tell you why I'm downtrodden or broken over something. Because if I do that, you might think ill of me. You might think I'm not the real person that I am. And so I'm not going to do that. Well, I'm going to tell you something. It's really hard for the world around you, for those closest to you, to be able to speak into your life if they don't know what's going on in your life in the first place. And so we have to be willing to be transparent and say, listen, I need encouragement as a parent because I'm struggling as a parent. Well, now I've got something I can speak into. Now I can, can help address the problem. I, I need encouragement as, a, as an employee because because I'm struggling. I'm not feeling really wanted. I'm not feeling like I'm doing a good job. And so when a coworker says, man, you nailed it there, then there's encouragement. There's a place where you begin to belong. We need to be careful that we do not allow the issue of transparency to be in the church what it is in the culture. And that is, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. But the church says, I've got issues. I've got struggles. And I've come into a safe place and in a safe environment where someone can speak into me because I've shared my struggles, my needs, my concerns, my fears, my anxieties. And someone can speak truth into it that can lift me up out of my uh, miry bog that I find myself in. So, we've got the issue of intimacy and the issue of transparency, but there's also an issue of humility. Humility. And this humility is, is two sides of the same coin. So let's look at the first one. Humility is needed for the encourager. So if you want to be an encourager to someone else, you need to show humility. And here's why. You will never show encouragement to someone if you're only worried about yourself. Okay? So humility says, it's not about me, it's about them. That's the first step of encouraging someone, is stop looking at yourself and your issues and your concerns and your desire. Listen, one of the reasons why we don't encourage very often is because we're waiting for someone to encourage us. And I'll tell you, listen, that can fall into a pastor's mind and heart really quickly. Where you can say, I give, I give, I give, and where is the encouragement back? You can say that as an employer, I'm encouraging, I'm encouraging, well where, where is the appreciation back? We need to be humble enough to say, you know what? I'm not so worried about my encouragement, because I know that as I encourage another, it is always better to give than receive. So as I give out encouragement, I give it out liberally, I'm going to believe I'm going to be encouraged in the process. So I have to be humble enough to take my eyes off of myself and look to the needs of others, which Paul talks about. Man, don't make you the issue. Look to the issues and the concerns of others. He tells the Philippian church that over and over again. But humility is needed, listen, in the encouraged person's life and here's why because when it uses the phrase encourage that Paul encouraged them with much encouragement it isn't just flowery words of you do a great job or you're awesome at something it is a word of challenge and admonition because encouragement isn't something that just makes you feel good sometimes an encouragement challenges you in such a way that it motivates you to do something you weren't doing before 
So a coach, the job, and I'll just go back to my, my role as a coach of these young boys, my job is to encourage them and listen. What you don't hear on the sidelines is, you guys are all great, this is wonderful, I've never coached a team this good in my entire life, I love you guys, just come together and let's have a hug. Listen, you'll never hear that from me, right? What you hear is, let's go, find your spot, defend well, get your arms up, man, let's be aggressive. All of those words are words of encouragement to move my team from here to places that they wouldn't without me. And so the word of encouragement isn't always, it sometimes is, as we do at the end of the game, guys, great job, you did a great work. But a lot of the times encouragement is, you're here, and I love you so much, and I care about you so much, that I'm going to be honest, you need to be here. And spiritually right now, you need to start stretching. And spiritually right now, you need to be working. And I want to admonish you, and I want to exhort you, and I want to encourage you, because God doesn't want you here. He wants you here, and I want to be that personal trainer in your life. But here's the thing. When you admonish that way, you need to be willing to be admonished yourself. You need to, at times, be willing to hear a word of correction, a word of encouragement, likewise. And so this was an encouraging group of people who received much encouragement. Listen, if we came in with the mindset that I am going to encourage one person, when I step foot into Village Bible Church on Sunday mornings, let me tell you something, it would change, it would revolutionize the way we do church. Our church would never be the same again. But the struggle is, is that we come to church, not with the mindset, and we'll talk about this in a moment, not with the mindset of what can I do for others, but what will others do for me? And some of you are going to leave this place today and say, no one talked to me, no one interacted with me, Uh, No one asked how I was doing. I had a terrible week and nobody was concerned about that. And and I get that. And I will get that, that sometimes the preacher feels that way, right? But then I come to what I see here in Paul's example. And here's the thing that you've got to recognize. When this is written of Paul, twice in one verse that he encouraged the people, I want you to know that during this time when he is in Troas, some of the greatest um, heartbreak is happening in his ministry. The church at Corinth is falling apart. There's division. There's rampant sin going on. And there's all kinds of one-upsmanship with regards to the use of gifts in the church. So here's a church that Paul has invested an, an entire year and a half, the longest that he would ever spend at any church. He spends it in Corinth, and all of his labors and all of his focus on that church has led that church to fall apart. We know, number two, that he had just left Ephesus, and what brought him to Troas was a riot that had broken out. He goes to Syria, and he finds out that they want to kill him in Syria. There's a plot to kill him. And so he's got to leave, and he meets the team in Troas instead of where he was going to meet him in Syria. Paul is at a very, very weak spot. And I want to encourage you with this truth. Sometimes the best time and place for you to be an encourager is when you are most discouraged. 
And what we get is, I'm discouraged, people are going to come to me. The Christian way is, I'm discouraged, I'm going to go to people, and I'm going to pour into them. Why? Because I'll tell you, your words won't be very flowery. When you're at a place of utter despondency and utter discouragement, it'll be amazing what will come out of your mouth to encourage another. And so in our place of greatest discouragement is the greatest opportunity to encourage those. we got to move on. Notice the second thing we see about this group. It is an eclectic group of people. It is an eclectic group of people. And it is necessary and important for our gatherings to be eclectic in nature as well. So we are given a list of seven men. Most of the names we would struggle to pronounce, right? One of the names is a great name. Greatest name you could ever give a child, the name Timothy. God bless anybody named Timothy. It's a strong name, right? Says anybody named Timothy. But we have all these names. And what can we learn about these names? Well, it's not just names that are given, but notice in the text the places where these names come from. We have the Asians, the Macedonians, the Bereans, the Thessalonians. So we have all of these different people, the Derbians or whatever you would call people from Derby. And so you have these names, and you have these locales. And what this tells us is, is that the people of God, as they gather, are going to be people from different upbringings and different places and different homes. And so one of the glorious things that we experience here at, at Village Bible Church here at the Sugar Grove campus is we're not all from Sugar Grove, there are the good majority of us are from Sugar Grove, but there's Yorkville and, and Hinkley and Big Rock and Aurora and Elburn and Maple Park and Caneville and Montgomery and Oswego and, and Plano and Sandwich. I mean, we come from all different places and we all have different stories. We all have different things that have happened. Our coming to Jesus Christ has come in a different way because of the cultures we were a part of and how we met the Lord. And that is a good thing. So we see that they're different in their places where they came from and, and the places where God called them from. Number two, I want you to notice that uh, we come from different places from a social economic standpoint. And so we are listed from the Thessalonians. Notice in the text, it says that there are two guys from the Thessalonians that are represented, and that is Aristarchus and Secundus. And Aristarchus and Secundus, their names tell us about them. It was very common in first century times to take on a different name than the name that was given to you at your birth. If something dramatic happened in your life, to signify that dramatic happening in your life or to describe the kind of life you've lived, your name would change. We know this by the one who's the apostle in this text because we knew him before Acts chapter 9 as Saul and now we know him as Paul. And we see this over and over again. So we're given two guys, Aristarchus and Secundus. Aristarchus comes from the word aristocracy. Aristocracy means that uh, one who is from a uh, position of, of power and riches. And it would seem that Aristarchus was named that probably because he was born into or came into wealth and power. And so he was this Christian in the Thessalonian church that had power and wealth most likely attributed to him because it would seem odd that a pauper would be named rich and powerful, okay? 
Probably would have changed his name if that was the case, because every time they would call his name, they would laugh at him and say, listen, pauper, you who are named rich and powerful, it doesn't add up. And then there's Secundus. And Secundus is a name that really helps us to understand it because it's really not a name in and of itself. It's a, uh, a fragment of, th- or it's a compound uh, of three fragments of names. Secundus means three things. Secundus means one who is second, one who follows, and one who has found favor. So each of these parts of his name has a meaning to it. One who is second, one who follows, and one who has found favor. Scholars believe that what this is telling us is the kind of life Secundus lived. He was second. What it literally means is he was a slave. He was a slave who followed a master. He was a slave who followed a master who found favor. And scholars believe based on his name, what it is telling us is is he's a man who grew up as a slave, who followed faithfully his master, and either because of his faithfulness in following his master, was set free, now is a free man, because he found favor by his master, or he was a slave who followed his earthly master, but found favor in a heavenly master, Jesus Christ, and became a follower of his. And so what we have is, based on these names, and I am speculating a bit, but many commentators do this, so I feel like I'm in good company, that what we have is the reason why these two guys are selected by the Thessalonians is a reminder whether rich or poor, you need Jesus. Whether slave or free, you need Jesus. And isn't it ironic that that's exactly what we are told in the book of Colossians, that there is no male or female, slave or free, rich or poor in Christ Jesus, that we are one because of Him? And so no matter if you're rich this morning, or poor this morning, if you live on the right side of the tracks or the wrong side of the tracks, if you find yourself driving a brand new car or a jalopy, I want you to know that you are welcome here, number one. And number two, that doesn't matter when we gather together because the only thing that does is we're sinners in need of Jesus. And so we've got this eclectic group. Notice another element of it. It involves the old and the young. So we are told that Timothy and Trompius are two men that are a part of this uh, team that are coming together, and I'll tell you in a little bit about what this team is about to do, but let's just deal with these two names, two guys, Timothy and Trompius. We know that Timothy is a disciple of um, Paul's. And he is a uh, spiritual son of Paul's. And we learn very, very quickly as he takes on the ministry of pastoring the church at Ephesus that Timothy is a young man. Paul says, don't let anybody look down upon you for your youth. Well, he's not even the pastor yet of the Ephesian church at this point. He's still following Paul around, serving Paul and, and, and helping Paul do the missionary thing. And he's a young man, probably in his late teens. Trompius is an older man, and here's why we know this. In 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter to Timothy, Paul tells us that Trompius is failing in health. And the word that is used, the Greek word that is used for failing in health, is that he's an aged man about to die. 
And so what we are given here is an eclectic group of young men and old men who are coming together. So what does that mean for us as a church? When we gather together, listen, we need to be really, really careful that what our focus is isn't on one demographic. One group of people. Some years ago, a very famous pastor wrote in a book about how to grow a church and how to make a, a good church. He said, listen, what you've got to do as a church is you've got to figure out who you're reaching. And what he would do in the paper is say, what we're looking for is this person. And they would name the person. And say, this is what Sam is to look like. He is to be a uh, upper uh, middle class individual. He's a white collar worker. Uh, he's in his early uh, 40s. He's got three kids and a wife. He, he travels this far. And they built their church and their programs about this one guy. And they said, this is who we're going to reach. And let me tell you something. With all due respect, we are to reach all people everywhere. No matter their age, no matter their social economic status, whether they're white collar blue collar, no collar, whether they have the biggest home on the block or no home at all, the church needs to be open to serve all people everywhere because that's who God came to seek and to save. And if the church isn't doing that, it's a country club, not the hospital that God's called it to be. We need to be an eclectic group of people. Well, this eclectic group of people were an engaged group of people. They were engaging. How were they engaging? Well, notice each of these guys have a job. They've been given a job. What was their job? They were to leave their places where they were living, and they were to go and do something. Well, what were they called to do? Well, 2 Corinthians tells us what they were doing in Troas. Paul tells the Corinthian church, hey, listen, Corinthian church, remember we asked all of the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Asia to take a collection for the Jerusalem church that's struggling with the famine, and I'm going to send someone to come and receive the money and to bring it to Jerusalem so that their needs can be met. These men that are listed are coming from their local churches with the money that they had collected in their local church to give to the Jerusalem church. And so what you've got is you've got people who are listed, all of them, listen, all of them serving God. And what we need to understand is, listen, New Testament Christianity is not a spectator Christianity. It is an engaged Christianity. One of the things that we have learned as we have studied, especially young people, as they leave high school and head into uh, college, is that many, many Christian uh, young people leave their parents' home, leave their parents' church, and never engage in church again. And one of the studies tells us, one of the major findings of, of numerous studies, said that here's the reason why. What we did in our youth groups and what we did in our children's ministry is we always separated them from the real church. And we gave them programming that made them feel good. And we gave them programming that kept their attention. And we gave them programming uh, that uh, was exciting to them. Well, the problem was, is at 18, we said, kids' church is over, now it's real church. And the kid that had never experienced real church, what it meant to sit in worship and worship with, with the church collective that served and used their gifts, that was expected to be an active part in the church, that the kid said, wait a minute, I never had to do anything. 
I got to sit back and you entertained me and you, you made things fun and, and I got to enjoy all of that. Well, listen, there's a reason why our junior hires and high schoolers are in this room right now. There's a reason why our junior hires and high schoolers, you will see all throughout our church serving. They were opening the door for you. They were pointing you to a parking space. They are teaching younger kids. They are involved in the hospitality ministry. They're involved in the teaching ministry, the outreach ministry, the discipleship ministry. Why? Because we want to be a church like the first century church where all of us, young and old, are engaged in the work of the gospel and in the work of impacting the lives of the church. And that way, listen, that way, when the kid now grows to be 18 years of age, and as they head off to look for a church, whether at college or as they get married and move on from mom and dad and from Village Bible, they know that when they enter into a church, it's not about them, but it's about how they can serve others. And so we need to be a church that's not involved in spectatorship. And I'll tell you, as our church gets bigger, it's really, really easy for a lot of us to watch other people do the ministry. And I'm here to tell you, you're missing out on your Sunday when all you're doing is receiving and not serving. These people knew that there were people counting on them. Listen, something is wrong, and I just want to be real honest with you. Something is wrong with your experience on Sunday. If you can come here and enjoy and receive and leave, and you haven't impacted a single person. You haven't done what God called you to. There are so many one another commands for us to live out that we cannot do it if we're simply going to be a spectator. So we need to be a church that is connecting with the right people, doing what the people of God are called to do. We're called to encourage. We're called to serve and be a part of a diverse group of people who are engaged in meeting the needs of one another. That's what it means to be connected to the right people. Point number two, and we won't take as long. Point number two, we need to be committed to the right priorities. So go back to point number one for a minute, Sean. Help us out here on the screen. On point number one, we could look at what we've got, encourage, eclectic, engaging, and that's what you're looking for for your Super Bowl party coming up. I'm looking for people who who are going to be encouraging when they get there. Man, Tim, this is the best Super Bowl party ever. Your food is great. The atmosphere is great. The TV has got the right color and ratio. What an awesome, what an awesome party. We want an eclectic group of people, right? We want men and women. We want young and old. Who's going to tell the old Super Bowl stories of how great those old Super Bowl teams and games were if there aren't the old guys to be able to be a part of? But we want the young people as well because they're excitement is, is going to bring the party up to a whole new level and we want people to be engaged there's nothing worse than a super bowl party where people come in and nobody's excited and nobody wants to watch the game we want people who are there to be a part of it well listen if that's all the church is is a group of great people coming together doing some awesome things well then we've got a problem because the church has been brought together for specific purposes 
What are those purposes? What are those priorities that we need to be able to check off our list and be able to say, I haven't been a part of church if these things haven't happened. I was a part of something, but it wasn't what God intended church to be for me. And each Sunday, you need to ask these questions because if not, then you're out of step with God's blessing for you for why he invented and created the church for our good and our benefit. The first thing is that to be able to be committed to the right priorities, number one, you have to be gathered. You have to be gathered. Notice in the text, it tells us twice. It tells us twice that they gathered. Notice in verse, I think it's verse 6. Let me double check here. Verse uh, 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, and then notice in verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia does not speak of a building. It does not speak of a place that you go to. It speaks of an assembly. So it's odd that you would, when someone says, where do you go to church? It's not the where. It's the who. Who do you gather with? I gather with the people of Village Bible Church. It's not this building. This building could be gone and we're still a church. It is the gathering of people. Now there's a couple things with regards to this gathering that I think is important for us in our 21st century model of church and Christianity. Number one, it seems, it seems that it was a priority. It was a priority. Here's why. Because it says that they were gathered. Well, what would it have meant in the first century for those people to be gathered? Number one, it would have meant after a long day of work, of manual labor for many of them, you would go and not rest and get ready for the next work day, but that you would go and be with God's people. See, we need to remember, in the first century, there was no such thing as a weekend. There was no opportunity. And here's the crazy thing. At minimum, for these Gentiles, if you were a Jewish believer, even if you were given because there was a lot of Jews in your area, you might have had a synagogue that would have allowed for a Sabbath. But most Gentile areas wouldn't have allowed for a Sabbath rest. And so you would have been a part of, this would have been an average work day, where you would have worked hard and served. And you say, listen, instead of staying home and doing what I can do by myself, I'm going to go and I'm going to gather with people. Number two, to gather would mean that you would marginalize yourself in your society where persecution, where the loss of property, where harassment would have been commonplace. And so today you left your home. No one picketed you. No one threatened you. No one screamed at you or said, you know, when you get home, your house won't be here. Because we live in a country with incredible freedoms. We get to leave and we get to go to church and we get to come back and nothing has changed. Nothing has transpired. We've lost nothing. These people gathered together and it was such a priority that they recognized by me gathering together, I might lose something in the process. 
Which begs the question, if they were able to do it with such hostility, with such opposition, with so many things on the line, why is it we can't do it with nothing on the line? One of the major phenomenons that has gone on since I, in my 15 years of ministry is both a cultural issue and a church issue. We have seen study after study of church attendance by evangelical Christians plummet in the rate of attendance. And you would say, well, we're not a normal evangelical church. Well, let me tell you how normal we are. Back in the day, when I first started pastoring here, our rate of attendance was around 80%, meaning you were a regular attending family, you were here 80% of the time, okay? Some were better, some were worse, but the average for our church body was about 80%. Can I tell you, now 15 years into it, we're at about 55 to 60%. Something changed. Now, it could be, let's put it on the church, maybe we're not doing a good job, maybe maybe uh, the preaching isn't where it needs to be, and I, I want to own that, if that's the case, why people aren't there. But we ask people, is it something that's going on, or is it, is it no, we want to be there, we want to, but there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And I, I'll tell you something, in the first century church, they could have done the same thing, and their this is or that's would have had a whole lot more teeth to it. We've made decisions that church is not a priority, that gathering together, and here's why. I can listen to preaching on the radio. I can watch preaching on the television. I can sing worship music in my car. I, I don't need this church. Well, listen, yes, you do, and the church needs you. And so when you start thinking that way, what you're doing is devaluing what the Bible has said and what God has said, that the church is this great pillar and this great foundation of our faith. We need the church to grow us. We need the church, not the building, not per se the organization, but we need other believers that we gather together on a regular basis to love us, encourage us, care for us, speak truth into us, teach us and admonish us as we need to comfort us in times of difficulty. And the problem is, is that the new habit is, is I can have them when I need them and I'll come and go as, as time allows. That's not the case. They were a gathered people. Notice the second thing that they were. They were a growing people. It wasn't that they were just gathered, but they were growing. Notice that it, the text tells us that there was teaching going on. Now, we've seen this in Acts chapter 2, where it says they devoted themselves, speaking of the church, to the apostles' teaching. And boy, did Paul give it to them. Notice in the text, it tells us in verse 7 that Paul was the speaker, and it tells us that he prolonged his speech until midnight. Oh, boy. Number two, it says in verse nine that there's a young man named Eutychus who's listening to Paul speak. And Paul speaks. He's falling deeper and deeper into a deep sleep as Paul talks still longer. Later on, it says in the text that after an, an issue takes place, which we'll get to, that Paul takes care of the issue and then converses for a long while until daybreak. This shows us something. While it does not show us that I should go on hour after hour, 
It shows us that the focus of the people of God wasn't to look at their clocks and say, are we almost done? But that there was a growth in them of being hungry to hear the word of God. And and the reason why is I need that word of God to direct my paths in the days to come. Well, listen, you have no need. Listen to me very carefully. You have no need for anything I've said today if there's no intention that you're going to leave this place and try to direct your lives according to the scriptures. Listen, you've wasted your time if you have no intention of living out what you're learning here. But how hungry you and I will be if we know... That what we're hearing, whether from me or through the encouragement of another person, that that can be used to make my life more for Christ than it was the week before. And so Paul is teaching, and he's telling him things, and he's teaching, listen, in such a way, knowing that he might not have any more time with him. And there needs to be this sense of Christians that when we gather, we should not believe, well, we'll see each other for sure again. Because we know better than anybody that that's not the case. There are many in our midst today that, that were there some years ago and aren't there now. And we no longer can be encouraged by them. We no longer can be uh, encouraging them. We no longer can be ministered to by them. We no longer can hear about what God is teaching them because they are now gone. And we need to recognize that this may be the last opportunity we have. Paul recognizes, this is my last opportunity. And I want to love on them and minister to them and care for them. And we need to do likewise. Number three, it's an opportunity to give. There's two components of giving. I'm not going to belabor it. But the first one was a financial gift. These men had come from all of these different churches with gifts to give someone else. And one of the things that we need to be a part of is is we just cannot receive, we need to give. Now the job isn't for us to give so that a church can just continue to increase and accumulate wealth, but it is to give to the ministry and care and the concern of others. And that's what we need to make sure of. But this giving isn't just always done outside, but notice what it says, that they gathered, and what did they gather to do? To break bread. Now, breaking of bread in the New Testament church involved two things. It involved the communion meal. That is what we take the Lord's Supper every first Sunday of the month. We remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But every Sunday that they would do that, they would share what was called a common meal, a potluck. And what it meant was, and this is so very important, I am in the world of catering. For those that don't know, I have two jobs, catering and pastoring. And when I cater, I bring everything. You just get to enjoy it. But in a potluck, everybody has to play their part. And in the church, the common meal was a representation that we come together under the oversight and over the banner of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and Lord of our sins. But we gather together and we've got to bring something to the table. And so this morning, let me ask you something, just really honest with yourself. What did you bring today? What did you bring What did you bring to minister to somebody, to fill them up? What did you bring to uh, allow someone to leave a little more encouraged, a little more filled with the Holy Spirit than you did before? If you haven't, it's like coming to a potluck with nothing in your hands. 
And maybe for our visitors, welcome. Enjoy the potluck. You're our guest. But after a couple weeks go by and you keep coming in and, and everybody's setting their platter, their casserole down on the table and they say, well, did you bring anything? At some point, it's going to get a little awkward, right? As you're getting in the line and filling up your plane, go, this is great. I love potlucks. I love potlucks. Someone's going to come up with a word of encouragement and say, hey, bring some green bean casserole next week. Bring something to the table. And this is a reminder for us that, listen, it is better to give than to receive. And we have a place. We have a calling. If we've called this place home for any amount of time, the question is, what did I bring today? What did I bring to minister to those around me? Third thing, and it's very quick, so don't get nervous. And that is, there's some pitfalls. There's some pitfalls. So what keeps us from these types of things? There are three things that I see, and I'm not going to speak on all of them equally. But the first one is stagnation. Stagnation. And stagnation is the habit of doing something over and over again that it grows stale. And one of the things that church can become, your gathering as a people can become, as I see the same people doing the same things, and it's getting boring. I'm bored. Don't let stagnation become an issue. Here's what I've come to realize. When I am active in ministry, things don't get boring. Because there's a new opportunity, there's a new person, there's a new place where I can serve. And some of us are serving in the same spots, doing the same things, not because we feel God's called us there, but because we're comfortable. And we're not asking the question, God, what may you have for us? A good church is always shaking the people of God and always pushing them to something greater. These seven people that left their church had left their comfort zone to do something the church had asked them to do. And any good, healthy church is going to move the stagnation out of people and give them opportunities. So in your bulletins today are a couple ways for you to get out of your stagnation. We've got camp opportunities, and we've got short-term mission trips, opportunities for you to step out of your comfort zone, maybe to encourage or to serve people in a way that you've never done before. Don't be stagnant. Number two, don't allow slumber to encumber your ability to receive all that God wants you to. So how do you apply this? Okay, so there's this young man, Eutychus. He's listening to Paul go on and on like some of you are. They're fighting. He's fighting, trying to stay awake. He goes and sits at a, at a window. To get some fresh air, the lanterns are, are, are spewing out all kinds of hot air, so it's a stale room, it's a hot room, and he's exhausted, and he's fighting not sleeping. But then he falls asleep, and in the process of falling asleep, he falls out of the window, and he dies. And Paul comes, and he resurrects him. Okay, what's the application there? Don't fall asleep in church, or you could die. I don't know what else to do with it, right? I don't, there's nothing else, I, I, I got nothing, okay? But here's what I do know, without going too far in this, because we are dealing with a physical situation, can I ask you this question this morning? How many of you are slumbering? How many of you, and what I mean by slumbering, asleep, is when we are asleep, we are present, but we are not cognizant of what's going on around us in our circumstances, right? So, you could be sleeping here, you're present, you're in the place, okay? 
But you have no idea what's going on around you. You have no ability as a sleeping individual to minister or care uh, with the concerns or needs around you. You're oblivious to all of that stuff. Well, let me ask you this, modern day Eutychus. How many of us this morning are oblivious to the needs or the people around us right now? That God may be calling us to encourage. That God may be calling us to speak into. That God may be calling us to serve. And you've come in and a modern day Eutychus is asleep at the wheel going through their present. But they have no idea what their place is in the church. And I will tell you modern day Eutychuses are oblivious to the good that church brings. And so maybe you'll leave today and you'll say, I didn't get anything out of the service. And that may be on me. And I got to stand before the Lord and I got to stand before your guiding elder team and I have to be held accountable for that, that my messages are relevant and that they're timely and all of that. But I also want to put back on you, I want to ask you the question, were you asleep before you even got here? Were you asleep to the needs of those around you? Were you struggling with Eutychus syndrome? Maybe because the walk of Christ isn't as important as it maybe it once was. Or maybe you're a part of a charade where the walk of Christ for you isn't anything at all. Be careful that you are not slumbering. Finally, and it's a very short thing, here it is. Don't let success keep you from getting what God wants out of you. In verses 13 through 16, what has just happened is a dude has fallen out of the window, so you hear... Okay, that would change your Sunday, right? He's dead on the ground. Everybody runs down to get to him. Paul scoops him up. I would have left you dead. But Paul scoops you up, and he prays. He does something, and he looks up, and he says, listen, he's not dead. He's alive. Now, every, uh, most every commentator says he was dead, and now he's alive. Paul resurrected him from his death and healed him uh, from his death to be alive again. Pretty dramatic. If that was us, there would be a temptation to say, let's just sit here and enjoy that, right? But notice very quickly as I close, what do they do? It says, he went down, and and when Paul had gone up after doing all that, he broke bread, he ate, he conversed with them for a while until daybreak, and he departed. Paul didn't stay in the success of raising a kid from the dead. And there are some things that say, some churches that will say, what we've got going on is so good, let's just bottle it up and keep it for ourselves. But a good and healthy church, notice verses 13 through 16, and they departed. So all the good that happens here on a Sunday isn't to be bottled up and we're just us four and no more and let's just enjoy this. The reason why we gather together is what we're going to do here in one moment and that is we're going to leave. So that we might leave and wherever we go, whoever we come in contact with, we minister to them. We love them. We encourage them. We show the love of Christ to them. The reason why we gather is so that we can be sent out to do the work of God so that God may be glorified and people might be saved. That's what we need to get out of a Sunday. And my hope and prayer as your pastor and as a staff and as elders is that we would set that up for you. But you can't come just to be a spectator. My prayer is that next week we will come in with a new mindset and a new plan that we are going to come in and we are going to do as the New Testament church did amidst this eclectic group of people. We are going to seek out and love and care and minister to those because it is better to give than to receive.